earlier this month, first part of January, this sentence, this phrase just popped into my head and it has stayed there. And it's just simply, who are you taking with you? Okay, and I thought about it. I marinated on it for a little while. And I'm like, God, where are you going with this? Well, took a trip with the youth, did some more reading, did some more study, and then I got where God was taking me with this when he said, who are you taking with you? So I started doing some research, chasing some rabbit trails and omitting a lot of stuff that didn't make sense for this. But it made sense just not to go in here. Now, normally when I hear the name Dave Ramsey, I'm thinking of financial peace. I'm thinking of his plan to get you out of debt. I'm thinking of his ways to help you to save money. And, yeah, I just, yeah. But he told this story once in this thing that, in this little, little blog, I guess you could say, that he wrote, that he quoted his friend Zig Ziglar. And it was about Belgian horses and how they were trained to work together. And how it made these incredible animals so much more effective. And he went on to say Belgian horses are huge, powerful animals. In fact, one Belgian horse alone can pull more than 8,000 pounds. That's one strong horse. Now, the weird thing is, though, that if you put two Belgian horses together who are strangers, they don't just double the amount they can pull to 16,000 pounds. They triple it to 24,000 pounds. And if you spend time training them to work together, that unified pair can pull a whopping 32,000 pounds. That's four times what one single horse can do alone. So who are you going to take with you in your daily life, in your daily walk, in your everyday process? Who are you going to take with you on your journey? Who are you pouring yourself into? Who are you discipling? Who are you training up to become a disciple? Who are you mentoring? Who are you encouraging? What are you teaching? Is what you, what I, what what are we teaching them along the way with our journey? What are our actions teaching them? Verbally, what are we teaching them? Is what we're teaching them along the way, is it preparing them and equipping them as a disciple of Christ? Is it preparing them and is it equipping them to one day then themselves become the ones that disciple somebody else? So who are you taking with you? That has been on me to the point that when we finished up our series in Children's Church, we ended with the return on Revelation, where Christ comes back, we're with him, we made it through, we're in heaven, praise God, we finished the journey. And it gave all the dimensions of heaven and all this, that, and the other, being in that garden, being complete, being with Jesus. I remember looking at all my kids out there, and they're a great group of kids that have such an amazing hunger for God, and I'm so proud to see them grow. And God, and I looked at them, I said, kids, I said, who are you going to take with you? And I got this deer in the headlight look for about a second, and one of them said, what do you mean, who am I taking with me? I said, just imagine you sitting there and you see all of us together. We're around the throne. We're praising God. We're having a great time. But then we look around. Who have we brought with us? Who are you going to impact for the kingdom of God? 
And they all got to think in a minute. And I asked him, I said, do you know somebody that don't know Jesus but needs to know Jesus and just maybe you're in their life for that purpose? Every little hand shot up in that building that morning. I said, so come on, we're going to pray. They all gathered around the altar and we prayed that God would give them the boldness and the strength and the right words and the right, everything that they need to be that light for Christ whether it be the very beginning stage process for them where they're going to bust up that ground and bust up that soil, or whether it be they were going to come behind somebody that's already done that and they were going to be the one that watered it, or whether they come behind that person and get to be that one to pray them into salvation, to pray them into the kingdom. Whatever process, whatever God wanted us to do, that we would do it. And we've been building on, on that each week here lately to where we're starting a discipleship program for our kids out there. And they're hungry. And I love seeing that in our kids. But then, and I don't like math. I barely got out of math in high school. Barely passed it. Don't care for it. But these numbers wasn't so bad. I mean, they were bad in the point that they alarmed me and they scared me and they, some of them had actually hurt me. Barna did a study currently representing 38% of all adults and one-third of all teenagers, there are an estimate, estimated 98 million adults and children who have accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior. A substantial majority of the people who accepted Christ as their Savior do so before their 18th birthday. 18. Now, all right, the current study also indicates that nearly half of Americans who have accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior do so before their 13th birthday. That's just at a children's church age. That's 43%. And then, and then that two out of three born-again Christians, 64%, made the commitment to Christ before their 18th birthday. goes on to say, one out of every eight born-again people, 13%, made their profession of faith while 18 to 21 years old. Less than one out of every four born-again Christians, 23%, embraced Christ after their 21st birthday. And we all have such a reach in our work fields, where we're employed, our everyday-to-day activity, where it's the Starbucks to get a cup of coffee, or if we're at the gym, or, or if we're carpooling with somebody at a ball game with our kids. Who are we taking with us? Who are we witnessing to? Because these numbers, I don't care for numbers, but I know enough that they're very factual and numbers don't lie. And being in children's ministry, this really got me. I found this book on children's ministry. And uh, the pastor that posted it put copied a page and put it on a Facebook page and I'm on. And I just remember saying, oh God, we got to change this. And this was some ministry statistics for children's pastors, children's workers, children's leaders. It says 20% of your kids will walk away from the church for good. 50% of your kids will leave the church for a season but return later. 30% will stay in church. In a few years, two out of every ten will walk away for good. Now, we're running a little over 20 out there. Two out of every ten. So this study shows me that four of my kids out there are going to walk away. 
And then my first initial thought is, no, I'm not going to happen. We got to stop it. And I remember thinking, God, what can we do? What can I do? How can we change these numbers? How can we increase the kingdom and decrease hell? How can we build God's kingdom, build up the body of Christ, and make hell as empty as we can possibly make it? I'm like, God, what am I missing here? And then it hit me. God's like, go here. Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. He didn't say some of us. He didn't say pastors only or Sunday school teachers only or board members only or leaders only or people that are called only. He just said go. If we're saved, where to go? And then the Bible that I have, it has notes at the bottom, and it said this about um, the Great Commission. It says, Christ's program of mission. Make disciples of all nations. It involves three steps. One, go. Two, baptize them. And three, teaching them to obey everything that Christ has commanded us. Sounds simple. And I was like, well, God, why, why isn't there more? Why isn't there more discipling going on? Are we scared? I know sometimes I battle that. I'm like, God, do you really want me to walk up to that person and tell them that you love them or, or ask them if they know you or ask if I can pray with them? I'm liable to get cussed out, something thrown at me or whatever. And he's like, well, I got persecuted and died for you, so what you going to do? So I bite the bullet, and I'm like, Lord, help me, and then I go. And sometimes, I hate to say it, I let my fear override what God has told me to do, and then I walk away. And then sometimes I never see that person again. I missed it. I missed that opportunity because I let fear override what God told me to do. And if God tells me or anybody else to do something, he's not going to tell us to do it and not equip us to do it as well. God don't work that way. And it took me a while to grasp that. When I went to, um, deeper with the youth earlier this month, it was an amazing experience. It was an amazing time. I, it touched me in so many ways to see our young people hunger for more of Jesus and just to see the, the worship that these young people done, just to, to see them cry out for more of God and to, you know, commit, commit themselves to going to at least one person to the Lord. When Steve Mason gave that commission that night, there wasn't a seat, in, there wasn't a seat with not somebody, everybody was gone. They were all at the altar. And those kids got commissioned that night to go save one soul. And they're all up there. It was amazing. And then the speaker told the story at some point in there. He was in youth, on fire for God. He was in school. He said he was okay. He, you know, he didn't really stand in, but he didn't really stand out. You know, he wasn't really popular, popular. He was just there. But he said the most popular kid in school decided to befriend him, wanted to hang out with him, 
wanted to do stuff with him. And he's like, I'm like a nobody up against you, and you want to hang out with me? He's like, yeah, man, whatever you want to do, you know, it's cool. So they would hang out, build that relationship together. There was a difference between them. Terry, the speaker at Deeper, knew the Lord. This friend of his, Eric, did not. A couple of occasions, some youth events would happen. God was like telling, telling the, the gentleman, you need to invite him. You need to invite Eric. You need to tell him about me. You need to witness to me. Invite him to your youth group. Invite him to these things. And something would happen, and for whatever reason, he would chicken out, and he just wouldn't do it. He'd be like, God, you know what? Next time. Next time I got him. I'll do it next time. Well, next time finally came, there was this big event. They were bringing in this band and bringing in a speaker, I believe. And, and his youth pastor asked him, said, Terry, so are you going to invite Eric? He said, yeah, man, yeah, Pat, I'm going to do it this time. He said, good, we're going to put his name on a seat. They put his name, literally put it on a seat for him. The weekend of the event rolls around. Eric comes up to him. Hey, Terry, what you going to do this weekend? And... And Terry's like, oh, man, you know, I don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know, really. He's like, what? And Eric responds, dude, whatever you want to do, follow me. I'm open to anything. Whatever you want to do, let's do it. And he's like, man, you know what? I, I don't have no plans. He says, you can just go on and do whatever. Well, Terry went to that youth event that night, told his pastor, no, Eric didn't. It just, he wasn't coming. Well, he was there at a youth function. Terry was off with his friends on a lake somewhere at a cabin getting drunk. They took a canoe out to the lake. They went out on a boat. A bunch of drunk teenagers on a boat is not a good combination. The boat flipped. Okay. Terry come up so confused that instead of swimming, not Terry, Eric came up so confused, but instead of swimming to the shore, he swam further out to the deep. In the words of Terry, unless something happened and intervened and there was a cry out to God, that young soul died and went to hell that night. Terry said he missed him. He missed his Eric. He lost his chance with him. And he said from that moment forward, he said, I'll never lose another opportunity again. If it's me putting money in a missions bucket to send missionaries out to another country, if it's me buying a Bible where some kid can get it, if it's me traveling and speaking and witnessing to whoever you put me in front of, I won't lose an Eric again. He said that bothered him, and, it, and I, I can get that. I, I, I can't imagine what he went through as a young youth, knowing a friend of his died like that. And then I remember thinking, God, I don't, I don't want an Eric to fall through the cracks in my life. I'm in enough places outside of here that I should be witnessing to more people. Whether it's volunteering at my kids' school, whether it's where I go and work at part-time in the evening, wherever it is, there's enough people that I should be taking somebody with me. And then it goes on. If we're not, if we aren't discipling others, who's going to take the mantle after us? Who is going to make other disciples? Who's going to step up when we can't go on no more? Here's some statistics for ministers. 
1,500 pastors leave the ministry each month due to moral, moral failure, spiritual burnout, or contention in their churches. Another 80% of pastors and 84% of their spouses feel unqualified and discouraged in their role as pastors. 50% are so discouraged that they would leave the ministry if they could, but have no other way of making a living. 70% said the only time that they spend studying the Word is when they are preparing their sermons. Almost 40% polled said they have had an extramarital affair since beginning their ministry. 80% of seminary and Bible school graduates who entered the ministry will live the ministry within the first five years. Who are we taking with us? Who are we training up to step in, to help, to fill the gap, to stand in that gap when people that are in position ahead of us get tired? Who's going to help? If we're not discipling nobody, I can tell you, it's going to be nobody. Those kids out there, they're our future. They're the now. Those children's church kids that come out there every Sunday, they're our future. They're the now. Even at the ages they are now, God can use them. But is what we're teaching them going to be beneficial to them? Is what we're teaching them, is it equipping them to be a disciple and to go and make another one? Or is it teaching, or, or could it be, are we teaching them what the world already teaches them and they don't want it because they can get it out there so they bet they'd just rather not come inside a church? And I remember thinking, God, I don't, I don't, I don't want to speak about this. God, I don't, I don't, I don't want to do this. He said, oh, but you're going to. He said, because I'm not going to leave you alone until you do. I'm like, well, God, what do we do? How do I do it? And I'm like, I fall short of what you're telling me here. I'm not even passing the muster on this. And he said, Paul and Timothy. And then look at Barnabas. I'm like, okay, well, Paul trained Timothy. Barnabas' names mean encourager, so he encouraged, even challenged people. And then it, I, I got to thinking, and it, Paul's of the church. Find your Timothys. Start pouring into them, encouraging them. Help train them, equip them. We got a church full of Timothys that are in search of a Paul. <laughs> we got a world out there of young people, even adults, that's a Timothy just looking for a Paul to happen in their life. Because if we're not teaching them how to follow Jesus, the world, I guarantee you, will show them how not to. If we're not letting them lead in some degree, some capacity, if we're not bringing them into our fold in this church, in any church, anywhere, then they're going to leave. Because they're hunting. They want a place to belong. They want a place that they can call their own. They want responsibility. They just want to feel a part of something I know I did. I wanted to be a part of something bigger than myself. And I'm so far out of my comfort zone right now, I can't even breathe, it feels like sometimes. But that lets me know I'm right where God wants me. In my opinion, Paul and Timothy's relationship, it's a great one to model after. It's a great one to follow. 
I have Paul's in my life. But not enough Timothy's. But that's going to change. I found this study, and they broke it down into three phases with the relationship dynamic between Paul and between Timothy. And it said phase one was the parenthood stage. In 1 Timothy 1 and 2, it says Paul's letter to him. It said he addressed him as my true son in the faith. And then it goes on to say in that statement, it says, Timothy's biological father was Greek, but there was no evidence given that he was a Christian. So Paul filled those shoes of a spiritual father to Timothy. Who are we being a spiritual father to? Or a spiritual, excuse me, spiritual mother to? Who are we stepping in the gap for when we know some of these kids do not have godly parents? Because they're here. You sit down and talk with some of them five minutes, you'll hear their story real quick. Who are we becoming a spiritual parent to? It goes on to say we need a sense of parenthood as we mentor because it's vital that we be grounded as we dream big dreams. Phase two, pace setting. The second phase of our ministry, mentoring, is pace setting, being the example of what mature ministry looks like. 2 Timothy 3.10, Paul set the pace with his life and challenges Timothy to learn by keeping up and emulating his lifestyle. And I had to ask myself that question, what kind of lifestyle am I asking my children at home or my kids out there, what kind of lifestyle am I asking them to emulate? What am I teaching them with my actions? Is it backing up the word? Or am I teaching them something they can go see off a billboard or out there at a movie theater? And the third one, partnering. In the book of Romans, there is somewhat of an obscure reference that Paul makes to Timothy in chapter 16, verse 21. Timothy, my fellow worker, sends you his greeting. Timothy has then gone from being a son to a student and now to be a colleague and a co-laborer. We spend plenty of time desiring and praying for more laborers, but perhaps not enough time investing in those with the potential to become partners in the mission. Could that be why sometimes something's lacking, why we need more help in one area, or why we're looking for something and they're there? They just need to be poured into like somebody poured into us when we were the baby Christians. Baby Christians on the milk. And we hadn't matured yet. We wouldn't give an unrealistic goals and unrealistic expectations when we were coming up as young believers. And we shouldn't put that on them either. Because that's a good way to run them away. That's a good way for them to just to fail and to think, you know what, hey, I don't belong. We got to get by them. We got to get beside them. We got to bring them up. We got to encourage them. We got to nurture them. <laughs> Sorry. As we disciple, not only is that one less soul that goes to hell, but that's one more teacher, one more preacher, one more worship leader, one more intercessor. Okay? <laughs> that's one more person that will go and make disciples. Okay. 
That's one more evangelist that's going to go and take the word. That's one more missionary that's going to go to countries that some of us wouldn't even fathom going to, but they will. That's one more that gets to do the work of the Lord. And the body of Christ, the kingdom of God, would, it grows and gets stronger. And hell gets weaker and hell gets smaller. So who are you taking with you? Who is that Paul that you're pursuing to learn from? Who is that Timothy that you were training? In Proverbs 27, 17, it says, As iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. My notes on that were sharpens another, develops and molds character. Because one thing I have learned is that when you're pouring into somebody else, when you're helping somebody else grow as a Christian or as a leader, you learn too. You learn maturity in that area too. You benefit from it just as much as they do. Just got to get out of that comfort zone. It's kind of like Terry Parkman said, sometimes the problem is, is yourself and you've got to get out of your own way. Be a Barnabas. Be that encourager. Be that one that challenges. I've got those in my life. Here. Be a Paul. And train your Timothy. We have to equip other disciples. There's more to it than us just leading them to the Lord. Because when they're led to the Lord, God's got a plan and a purpose for them too. And we want them to stay. We don't want to get them in here and say, you know what, hey, glad to have you. Praise God you're in heaven. You're going to heaven one day. Your name's down in the Lamb's Book of Life. And then we just let them go. What are we going to teach them? What are we going to show them? I know sometimes I've heard people, and I've been guilty of it myself, we get hung up on those giftings that are mentioned in 1 Corinthians. We get wrapped up in that. At least I did. Am I going to be a teacher? Am I going to be a preacher? Am I going to do this? Am I going to do that? We forget that main key component that in Matthew 28 that says we're all commanded to go. Jesus didn't specify a calling from another. He didn't specify a gifting from another. He didn't say if you were Billy Graham or George Meyer or whomever, go. Or if you were the head pastor, the youth pastor, or a leader within a church, you go. Mm -mm. He said everybody. And if he said everybody that can go do it, then guess what? Everybody's equipped to go do it. You just got to get up and go. So who's going to go? I'll ask you like I asked my kids that day when, we, when this kind of hit me again. Everybody in here knows one person, maybe more than one, but one person maybe sticks out more than the other that you know that if they died tonight, that if their ticket got punched, they would die and they would go to hell. Everybody's got that person in their mind. You could probably see a mental picture of them right now. 
Who are you going to take with you? I've got a mom that doesn't know the Lord. And every time I try to, try to witness to her, she shuts me down. And I stopped for a while because I got tired of hearing, oh, we all go to heaven. No, no, you don't. And then I got tired of hearing, well, the loving God ain't going to send me to hell. No, Mom, you're right. He won't. It's what you do or don't do is going to send you where you're going to end up. It's your choice to make. And that's going to predetermine where you're headed later. So I backed off because I got tired of hearing that. It was like a cycle, that, like a hamster on a spinning wheel that never went anywhere. Just did this right here. Just go around, around, around. I'm like, fine, Mom, I give up. And God brought that back to my attention. He clearly told me, he said, I never told you to give up. So my mom might not want to hear it, but she can see it. She may not want to hear it, but she'll know that I'm on my knees for her, interceding on her behalf. That before God forbid something happens to her, she knows who Jesus is. That I lived my life in such a way that she could see that, you know what, this thing she was talking about is real. I have to because if I don't, that's on me. And that's my mom. And my stepdad's right there with her. So everybody's got that one person. What are we going to do? I asked those kids that night, that morning, I was like, you want God to use you? You want God to give you the strength to walk up to that person no matter how scared or uncertain you may be and tell them even if it's just something so simple as, you know what? Jesus loves you. He died for you. If you think nobody else loves you in the world, He does. I went on to ask my kiddos out there, my regardless of how they take you or what happens, that you could walk away knowing that you did everything and you said everything that you could do, that they know the truth. I said, do you want to be a part of that? All my kids that were sitting, all of them just jumped up. And I have children out there that range from the age of five, and I think my oldest one's 10, maybe 11 out there now. So if a five-year-old through an 11-year-old's age can get it, what are we doing? So that day we had a prayer. We prayed for those lost souls that we know and that God would give us the strength and the words to say to those people, to let our lives be a witness and to whatever God said do, we would go. And it just, it got me. They were all, that little altar out there in that youth building, all around it. Music playing, those kids crying out for their friends or family members that they wanted to see come to the Lord, that they didn't want to see perish and end up in hell. They get it. Even as young as my kids out there, they get it. They just, they, they just need somebody to teach them how. They just need somebody to come along beside them and show them how and guide them and nurture them and encourage them. And if they need that, then guess what? Our youth need it. And if our youth need it, our adults need it. Because as we get older, the chances of somebody coming to salvation, 
those numbers get less and they get less. I don't want nobody else to perish. So who are you going to take with you? Who's that person you want to intercede before on their behalf? Who's that person you want to take to Starbucks for a cup of coffee or out to breakfast or dinner one day and just to start being that light, being in their life until God opens up that moment to where you can teach and share about Jesus? Because that relationship, it doesn't end. When you're that mentor-mentee person, when you're that person discipling that person, that relationship's not going to end. In my opinion, it's not going to end. So who are you going to partner with? Who are you going to help? Who are you going to teach by your life and your example? We all have that Timothy in our life. And we're all going to have our Paul. And we'll run into our Barnabas right when we need the encouragement and the challenge the most. And, it's, and we're all called. I don't care what the world says. We're all called. Because Matthew 28, Matthew, that scripture tells me I'm called. It tells me you're called. And everybody out there tonight that's out there in that youth building, they're called. And we're a mighty number. And we could be like those horses. We all work together. We become an unstoppable force that the biggest demon in hell can't stop, but he'll run from. I'm going to close in prayer. And as I do, I, I would like for you out there that person that you know that God has put in your life to be that light, to be that witness to. Go ahead and start interceding on that person's behalf. Go ahead and start praying for that person. And that God will give us the right words and the right way to say it when the time comes. And usually when that time comes, we're going to think it's the wrong time. But in God's time, it isn't.